Today's date is July 17th, 2021. My name is Karen Kay, Recovered Compulsive Eater from Syracuse, New York at my credit zone transfer. I'd like to welcome everybody to the Big Book Saturday Workshop with Harlan G. Our co-hosts are Maria F. from Ireland. And we also have Nancy J. from Geneva, Illinois. And we have Sue L. from, from Pennsylvania. Um, if you have a question during the meeting, please feel free to put it in the chat or put it uh, directly to me. I am your host today. Please note the speaker, Harlan G., will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the question and answer sessions, which follows, will not be recorded. We will post a link to the previous week's recordings in the chat function if we're able to find them. No worries, all is well. We ask that you make sure you keep your microphone on mute at all times today during the study. Also turn off your camera, which means your video, if you're exercising, eating, or if you need to step away from your screen. And I will put in the chat again, um, also the seven tradition. Also make a note that next weekend, Harlan G will be doing a retreat and he will give you more announcement about that. And the details will be put in the chat. So Harlan, take, you take it over. Thanks, Karen. And thanks to all of you who make this possible. I'm so appreciative. And uh, it never fails to uh, put me into a state of awe when I think about how this all started in the coffee plantation with one person and how it grew and grew until what it is today is quite miraculous. Next weekend, as Karen has said, we will not be meeting in this forum. We will be meeting the weekend after, but next weekend, you are all invited to, part to attend a retreat that is gonna be translated into Spanish and done in English. I'm gonna be doing that next weekend for the groups in all over the world actually, but primarily Spanish speaking groups, Mexico, Central America, South America, uh, America and Canada and anywhere that people speak Spanish and it will be UN type technology where they will be translating it uh, instantly, instantaneously. So we, we shouldn't have to wait very long after it's said to, to get it translated. It should be pretty quick. I'm very, very glad to be here today. I hope that it is as absolutely stunning where you are, whether you're listening on podcast or you are listening live today. It is July 17th. It is a stunning summer day here in the desert of Arizona. The Sonoran Desert is just gorgeous today. It's not as oppressively hot as it has been. And uh, the temperatures here are, are down from where they have been to give us a little break. And uh, I hope that wherever you are, it is just as beautiful. We have been just cracking open the chapter, the family afterward. And what we're going to be discussing and what we have been discussing is the patience that is required by the family of the addict, the alcoholic, the compulsive overeater, the whatever it is you are, whatever it is that is in the family, the patience and the love and understanding that is required. It is the faith that sees through death. It is the faith that sees through insult. It is the faith that sees through the challenges that addiction has brought. And there are many, many of us who not only have been 
challenged by this disease, we also found that when success came our way, when joy came our way, it didn't fill that void that is the disease. It didn't fill that God-sized hole, that God-sized puzzle piece. And so oftentimes we threw our hands up and we threw up our hands and said, God, I just don't know what to do anymore. And what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be looking at the family afterward. We're going to be on page 123 and we're going to be at the bottom where we are at the bottom where it says now and then the family and I'll give you a minute to get there. It says now and then the family will be plagued. And while I'm giving you time to turn your big books to page 123, I'm going to just review that we have been talking <clears throat> about the assertion of ego. Each person in the family wants to play the lead. Each person in the family wants to get their own way. And what we're taught in program over and over again is this can be very, very dangerous. Okay, let's go to page 123. Usually I do a little bit more of a review before hitting the ground running, but I feel like today we really want to hit the ground running because we're not going to be together next week in the same kind of forum. So let's take a look at what it says on 123. Now and then the family will be plagued by specters from the past. What is a specter? A specter is a site, a, a, a memory, if you will, an, an idea of something that has happened in the past because of the illness for the drinking career of almost every alcoholic has been marked by escapades, funny, humiliating, shameful, or tragic. And in my lifetime, I have known funny, humiliating, shameful, and tragic. I, can, I have memories when I was a little boy, three years old, four years old, five years old, of people, primarily doctors, dentists, teachers, rabbis, neighbors, whoever, screaming and yelling at my parents and screaming and yelling at them about how fat I was getting. And I was very, very embarrassed for them. I have a lot of memories, very, very humiliating memories of being in situations where I had split my pants or I had peed in my pants or I had farted so badly that my the smell was just horrible and I was so dreadfully embarrassed. And why was I doing these things? Because of the amount of food, the toxic high fat content food that I was shoving into my body and the shameful and tragic situations that what I did to myself, I have lost an incredible amount of weight. And yet the promise of what was given me as a child never ever came true 
people would say to me, just lose weight and everything will be okay. Now I lost a lot of weight, but I still have challenges in my life. I still have days when I get rejected by the world. I still have days where I don't feel quite like I fit in. So I have to work at it through the steps. I have to work at it by doing service. I have to work at it through the acceptance prayers, the acceptance, uh, sorry, the acceptance story in the back, which I read almost every day, not almost, I read it every day of my life because I have to accept things as they are. And so these challenges, these, what Bill calls in his story, these certain trials and low spots ahead, I would not be able to survive them if I was not in fit spiritual condition. I would not be able to survive them if I didn't work constantly at my steps. And when I say I constantly work at my steps, what I mean most of all is steps 10, 11 and 12. I have to constantly be working 10, 11 and 12. And without a constant orchestration of 10, 11 and 12, I would not be able to survive because in my ego, in, in, my, in my tempestuous self-assertion, I will not be able to fit into the world because I'm either better than you or I am worse than you. I'm either in my ego, I'm either looking up at you or I'm looking down at you. I'm not able to look the world in the eye. And Bill so eloquently puts in the chapter six, we can look the world in the eye. And for me, being able to look the world in the eye, no better, no worse, is one of the greatest joys and one of the greatest gifts that I have ever Ever been given. And I didn't even know that I was looking at the world from up above it or looking at the world from down below it all of my life until I got into recovery. And what unshackled me from this vantage point, this evil and disease sick vantage point, what unshackled me is the action of the steps, making the inventory of step four, writing it out as it's prescribed in the big book, as it's dictated in the big book. As I do that, I start to see the patterns of my fears, my resentments. I didn't have a lot of sex. I didn't have any sexual harms done others when I first came in the program. I came in when I was 24 and I first had a date with a girl when I was 35. But what I did have was a lifetime of manipulating people, not in a sexual sense at all, but in a manipulative, feel sorry for me kind of kind of way. And in a manipulative kind of, I'll say what you want me to say, I'll do what you want me to do. Just don't reject me. And one of the most beautiful gifts that I have been given in this program today is I can be with conviction, the man that God wants me to be. I say yes, when I mean yes, and no, when I mean no. And I believe that as close as anybody can get to being who God originally intended them to be, I believe that I am there today. I can hold my head up, walk the streets of Arizona or anywhere and not fear who I'm gonna run into, not fear what I'm going to encounter, what lie did I tell, what 
scheme that I unhatch. I don't have to live like that today. And that is true freedom. I love it on vision when Leia says, how free do you want to be? I want to be as free as free gets. And I love the action of the steps. And the other big, big emancipator for me, the big emancipator for me is is and always will be step nine. And I'm so grateful that nine is a part of 10 and four and five and six and seven and eight are a part of 10 because without that I would be screwed because making amends really sets me free. <sighs> Sorry, making amends for me is the great emancipator. So I lean heavily in 10, and 11 and 12, very, very heavily. So that these shameful, tragic, funny and humiliating situations that I remember from my past will not confine me to a life of cake and cookies and candy. It will not doom me, it sets me free, but it doesn't mean that I don't have the memories of it. And I can utilize those memories. Bill also says in the big book that our past, our shameful past will become our greatest asset. And I have found that I can be of maximum service to God and the people about me because of what I have experienced. Is that only true for me? No, don't miss the message. Don't miss the reason that I'm sharing that with you this morning. The reason that I'm sharing that with you this morning is because each and every one of you has a message. Each and every one of you <clears throat> is that person to another suffering human being. To the world, you're a person. To that person, you can be the world and you can light them up and give them something that no one else could give them. I'm not knocking the pay in ways. I'm not knocking therapy. I'm not knocking psychiatry or medicine. They all have their, or religion, they all have their place in the world. And in the big book, it even says, do not discount these things. They are very, very important. When I needed my knees replaced or my hips replaced, or I had my plastic surgery. I didn't, I didn't have uh, gastric surgery. I had plastic surgery. I've had 19 hours of plastic surgery. I didn't go to a meeting and lay on the table and say, okay, guys, pray over me. I need a new knee or a new hip. I went to a surgeon. I went to a hospital and they did the operation and that's fine. But you can give people something that no member of any other society can give them and you can give them hope. You can be the key that unlocks that door for them with your stories and your uh, shameful, your funny, humiliating, shameful or tragic escapades of your life will be of maximum value to the suffering people around you. And, you know, just as an aside, I was reading in the newspaper, I read the Chicago Tribune online every day, and I was reading an article in there about how the pandemic has really wreaked havoc on drug abuse 
and eating disorders and, and drinking and all that other stuff. And there are a lot of people that when we were in lockdown, when we were in lockdown, they really, really use that as a way of escalating their disease, their illness. So we need you more than ever. We need you on the front line more than we've ever needed you in the past. So don't only think that these things apply to me or a select few of us. If you're on that struggle bus, if you're new, if you're struggling, if you're not so new and you're still struggling, because you know, not everybody in the room that needs a 12-step call has is new. There are many, many of us who have been around for a very long time and we're still on that struggle bus. And a lot of times in OA, we hug each other to death and we need to say to the person, you know, maybe we, maybe we can help. Maybe something's going on. Can I be of assistance to you? And that can be a tremendous help too. So that's something to remember as well. I'm sure I'll get some questions about that once we break for Q&A. But I'm going to continue with the chapter, but that first sentence is a power packed sentence. And I want to, uh, just I wanted to talk about it because each and every one of us, whether you come from that anorexic side, whether you come from that bulimic side, each and every one of us has escapades, funny, humiliating, shameful, or tragic. And rather than use it as a reason to beat ourselves, rather than use it as a reason or a way to belittle ourselves or to diminish our faith in God, let's see these things for what they really are. And what these things are, are challenges that make us more useful to the suffering around us. So let's not forget that. The first impulse will be to bury these skeletons in a dark closet and padlock the door. And that's what we want to do emotionally. We want to put them out of our mind and forget them. Maybe we should forget them, but don't ever lose that combination. Don't ever lose the key because you may need to bring some of that stuff out to help somebody that really parallels your story. The family may be possessed by the idea, I'm at the top of page 124, that future happiness can be based only upon forgetfulness of the past. We think that such a view is self-centered and in direct conflict with the new way of living. Again, these escapades of your life, your embarrassment, your humiliation, your hilarious situations, your tragic situations, whether you were laughing, whether you were crying, whether you were devastated or whether you were elevated will mark how effective you can be for that next sick and suffering person. So don't lose the key. Henry Ford once made a wise remark to the effect that experience is the, is the thing of supreme value in life. That is true only if one is willing to turn the past into to good account. We grow by our willingness to face and rectify errors and convert them into assets. The alcoholic's past thus becomes the principal asset of the family and frequently is it's almost, is, it is almost the only one. The one thing 
that cannot be taken from you is what you know in your heart and know in your mind. And it is so easy to get discouraged. It is so like us to think negatively and so like us to catastrophize and eventually compare. And what is the shortest distance between where I am and unhappiness? It is through comparison. And when I start to compare myself to other people, that is a surefire way of being very, very unhappy. I have friends of mine who are very wealthy. I have friends of mine who are not very wealthy. I have friends of mine who have large families. I have friends of mine who have no families. No matter what the situation is, I have to remember. And I get lost in what I want and don't have too. I'm just as human as anybody else. But what I have is I have a way of life. I have a spiritual toolkit that's laid at my feet that will work in rough going, that no matter what happens in my life, no matter what the situation is in my own life, I have a way of working through steps and leaning on a fellowship that is always there for me, that is always there to support me and love me. I went through a divorce in 2010. This time of year was right before I was to move out of that house. And my wife and my daughter were very hostile toward, my ex-wife and my daughter were very hostile toward me, very, very hostile toward me at that time. And it was very trying on me. And what I did was I leaned into the fellowship. And when I first got into my apartment and I had lived in beautiful homes for the previous 20, 30 years. And I had lived in homes. Now I was living in this little tiny apartment with two big German shepherds that I had. And it was very gut-wrenching. I don't know that I've ever been lower in my entire life. I don't know that I ever tasted loneliness. I don't know that I ever tasted rejection like that, quite like that in my life. And I have been rejected by women and I have been rejected by things and, and you know, whatever. But this was a new vista of unhappiness. And it was a Saturday morning. It was August the 14th, 2010. August the 14th was a Saturday morning. And I woke up and I was in tears and I didn't know how in the world, I didn't know what in the world I was going to do. And so I looked at these two dogs and I knew that they needed to go out because, we, you know, I knew that they needed to go out and I took them. And I was as unhappy on that day as I ever was. I, I was very unhappy when my mother died. I was very unhappy when my dad died. I was very unhappy because of the loneliness that I had suffered through in my life. The asexual existence and the, the loneliness that I have known is very, was very, very challenging to my faith and challenging to my will to live. But on this day, I asked God, what do I do? What should I do? And I had just had my knee replaced in June of that year. So I wasn't fully ambulatory yet. A knee takes a longer time than a, than a hip. 
And I wanted to take the dogs and we were right across the street from a high school as I am today. And I took them into the tennis court and I ran them and I got a tennis ball and I threw it for them and everything worked out and I got through that day. Then I got through the next day was Sunday. And how did I do it? What did I do? I made sure that I leaned into the fellowship of Overeaters Anonymous as hard as I could and I knew that the fellowship of Overeaters Anonymous would never reject me, no matter what I was, no matter what I did, no matter what mistakes I had made, no matter how good or bad a person I was, I knew inherently that I would find love and I would find acceptance in the fellowship of Overeaters Anonymous. And so I leaned heavily into the fellowship. And how did I know to do that? It was a voice from God. It was absolutely a voice from God. And for the last 11 years, I have not stopped leaning into that fellowship, giving and taking, giving and taking. Just taking or just giving is unhealthy. I gave and gave and the fellowship and God gave back to me in ways that I can only try to repay. I don't know that I'll ever be able to repay it, but I can try. And I've had ups and downs since that day. I had ups and downs before that day, you know, and this was this was what God told me to do. Lean into the fellowship. Let's continue. I'm on, I'm in page 124. This painful past, I'm at the, near the top. This painful past may be of infinite value to other families still struggling with their problem. So remember all these things that you're going through, they are like gold because God will utilize you to comfort the next struggling person, that he will not waste the pain and waste these things. He will utilize them. You need to be in recovery and you need to put yourself where there are people that are struggling. And one of the things that some of us do beautifully is to put ourselves out there as people who are in recovery or, you know, wherever we are. Very important. We think each family which has been relieved owes something to those who have not. And when the occasion requires, each member of it should be only too willing to bring former mistakes, no matter how grievous, out of their hiding places. Showing others who suffer how we were given help is the very thing which makes life seem so worthwhile to us now. Cling to the thought that in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession you have, the key to life and happiness for others. With it, you can avert death and misery for them. And let me assure you of something. When you are put in a position to give like that, not only will you be a comfort to yourself, will you be a comfort to them, you will be comforted yourself. Often it is in giving that is so the essence of faith. We think sometimes, or I thought at times, I need to get something. I'm divorced, or I'm this, or I'm that. What can I get? What can I get? What can I get? Wrong question for Harlan. 
Wrong question. The question is, how can I be of maximum service? Remember that from the very beginning, the very, very beginnings of our fellowship, the, the genesis, if you will, the, the big bang of our fellowship, what happened? Frank Buckman, he had a resentment against the Lutheran church. And he started a group that came to be known as the Oxford group in England. He was from Pennsylvania. And he went to England and he wasn't just there to start a church or to start a movement. He was there because he believed, Buckman did, that Christians had lost their enthusiasm. There's a good word, enthusiasm. If you tune in next week, I'm gonna cover this ground again when I do Bill's story. But enthusiasm comes from two Greek words, entheos. Entheos in Greek means from God. He believed, Buckman did, that Christians had lost their enthusiasm for Christianity. And he saw people from first century Christianity in history books willing to die for their devotion to Christ. And he said, he looked around in the early part of the 20th century and said, we're losing it, guys. And then he went to China on a mission. And while he was in China, he encountered Christians who had been infused with this enthusiasm that he had been looking for for a very long time. And what did he find was giving these Christians this enthusiasm? And it was altruism. What is altruism? Altruism is giving with no expectation of a return. No expectation of a return. And he went back to England and he said, this is what we need to do. Now, Dr. Silkworth, who had no contact with Frank Buckman, who was not a member of the Oxford group, who was not an alcoholic, who was not in England, but he called our movement an altruistic movement. And what does Bill Wilson tell us in his story, which is chapter one of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous? He says that he found that when all other measures fail, work with another alcoholic would save the day. And what else does he tell us on page 14? You know, I get these calls all the time. And the call that I get from people is, what is, excuse me, what is your favorite chapter in a favorite paragraph in Bill's story or there is a solution or whatever? And I tell him, I don't have necessarily a favorite paragraph, but what I can point to us because of what we're discussing now, I want to point us to the bottom of page 14. And my attempt today is to continue doing something that I feel is very important. And I'm trying the best I can. I hope I'm successful. And that is to shed some new light on these chapters, two wives, the family afterward, and to the employer, to shed some light on these 
par these chapters that perhaps went unnoticed before. Because a lot of times we want to skip these chapters, we want to debase these chapters, we want to we want to just poo-poo them, and it's dumb. It's really dumb. There's a lot of gold in here. But anyway, let's go back to page 14, and let's see what Bill puts in the book that's so vitally important. At the bottom of 14, it says, my friend, who was his friend? Ebby Thatcher. My friend had emphasized the absolute necessity. Necessity is something that is necessary beyond question of demonstrating these principles in all my affairs. What does it mean to demonstrate? To teach by example, what are the principles? The principles are the steps. You know, there's people that would have you think, well, the principle of this is hope and the principle of that step is honesty and the principle, and that's great and let them have at it, that's fantastic. But when he's using the word principles, he's using it as another word for the steps. They mean the same thing. In one chapter, he'll call them rules. In another chapter, he'll call them steps. In another place, he'll call them principles. In another place, he'll call them whatever. But it all means the same thing. Particularly was it imperative. Imperative means important beyond reason to work with others as he had worked with me. Faith without works was dead, he said, and how appallingly true for the alcoholic. For if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, he could not survive the certain trials, not the maybe, not the possible trials, not the possible trials, the certain trials, because guys, no matter how evolved my recovery gets, I will never rise above the level of a human being. I could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. If he did not work, he would surely drink again. And if he drank, he would surely die. Then faith would be dead indeed. With us, it is just like that. Let's go back to page 124. So what is that paragraph telling me? I must perfect and enlarge my spiritual life. And let's remember something. This disease is permanent, progressive, and fatal. And one of the mistakes that I have made in my life was complacency. And when I got complacent, every time I got complacent, I ended up in relapse because the disease thrives in complacency. I must do more and more and more and more and shake it up and do different. I often go to Zoom meetings that I've never been to before. I often speak to people on the phone that I've never spoke to before, spoken to before. Why? Because I need fresh air in my program. When I only go to the meetings that I go to, when I only do the things I've done, I am inviting this disease right through the door. And this is something that my life proves. This is something that your life probably proves too. The disease is permanent. The disease is progressive. 
and the disease is fatal. And the disease is getting worse and worse over time, whether you are eating or not. While you're sitting here listening to me, be it on a podcast or be it live on uh, July 17th, 2021, doesn't matter. Wherever you are in your program, your disease is getting worse and worse and worse over time. And that must be uh, taken into account as we look at what we're doing and what we're not doing. Very, very, very important concepts. I hope we're shedding some new light on the chapter. That's my goal. I hope I'm successful. Bottom of 124, it is possible to dig up past misdeeds so that they become a blight, a veritable plague. For example, we know of situations in which the alcoholic or his wife have had love affairs. In the first flush of spiritual experience, they forgave each other and drew closer together. The miracle of reconciliation was at hand. Then under one provocation or another, they, the aggrieved one would unearth the old affair and angrily cast its ashes about. A few of us have had these growing pains and they hurt a great deal. Husbands and wives have sometimes been obliged to separate for a time until new perspective, new victory over hurt pride could be rewon. In most cases, the alcoholic survived this ordeal without relapse, but not always. So we think that unless some good and useful purpose is to be served, past occurrences should not be discussed. It is so tempting when we're angry what is, what is one of the things anger does? It makes us very honest. We, we take off the filter. We will say things to people that we would never say to them under normal circumstances. And we go right for their kitchen, right for their heart, you know? We wanna shoot those arrows right in their heart. You get us angry enough and we will say anything we can to be offensive and hurtful to the other person. But oftentimes when fresh perspective is, is allowed to uh, overtake us, it is wonderful. But in those moments where that anger does occur, much damage can be uh, done. And so the key is to remember what it says in the previous chapter, that when things are getting very heated, to take that moment and say, gosh, this is getting really serious. I know we love each other. Let's just take a minute and breathe. And I know that that's not an easy or natural reaction. I know that because I was married for 17 and a half years. I totally get that. And it is not a natural reaction, but we have to do the very best we can because it is so important to us not to get caught up in this anger. And what is anger? It is the dubious luxury of normal men, normal people. And if there's one thing I know, I do not have that luxury of being angry like that. The grouch and the brainstorm were not for me. The grouch is someone who's always angry. And the brainstorm is a word used very differently today than it was then. You know, today we would say, well, let's get together and we'll spitball or brainstorm the idea. 
in those days, a brainstorm was a person who wasn't always angry, but when they were, it's tempestuous and violent and oh, very, very wildly angry. And that's what they mean by the grouch and the brainstorm. Anger is the dubious luxury of normal men. And as we go through life, even though this may not be something that comes to your mind right away, because you know anger blinds us to so much, what we need to do is remember that there's only one letter difference between anger and danger, and that's D. And that D stands for death, anger and danger. You put the D in front of anger and you have what? danger. So let's remember that anger is dangerous. I'm on 125 near the top of the page. We families of Alcoholics Anonymous keep few skeletons in the closet. Everyone knows about the other's alcoholic troubles. This is a condition which in ordinary life would produce untold grief. There might be scandalous gossip, laughter at the expense of other people, and a tendency to take advantage of intimate information. <clears throat> Among us, these are rare occurrences. We do talk about each other. We do talk about each other a great deal, but we almost invariably temper such talk by a spirit of love and tolerance. And no matter what the situation is, we know that we are dealing with people that are just like us. I've had issues that maybe you didn't have. You've had issues that I've never had, but we have a shameful set of circumstances. We have a hysterical set of circumstances. We have a tragic set of circumstances. We all have that filing cabinet, don't we? We all have those things which bring about that all-consuming, debilitating shame, which can lock us in and make us almost agoraphobic in our lives. We're afraid to leave the house. We're afraid to see people. We don't want to be part of society. We're just scared to death of people. And a lot of times we think, oh, I'm a real introvert. Oh, I'm a real isolator. No, I'm just scared. No, I'm just frightened. I had a conversation not long ago with a woman who lives in Canada. And I've never met this woman. I, I don't know her from meeting her. I've seen her picture on Zoom and I've seen her picture on Facebook because uh, she and I are Facebook friends. So I have a vague idea of what she looks like or what she, she told me something very, very rattling. She told me she hasn't been on a date with a man in 30 years. And I said, oh, what a shame. I said, what a dang shame that is. I said, you're funny, you're personable, you're in recovery. You've been in recovery for a very long time. You could make somebody very, very happy. And her response was, oh, no, I've got this from uh, my children, and I've got that from my ex-husband, and I did this, and I did that, and I went here, and I did that. And I said, you've got to listen to yourself. Listen to yourself. This is not material in today. This is stuff that goes back 30, 40 years. I said, you've got to let that stuff go. I said, don't live to recover, recover to live and go out and live your life. Go out and live your life. And hopefully she will. She's a darling, darling human being. I hope, I hope that if she's here today, 
um, she will go out and, and, and listen to what we talked about on Tuesday. Okay, 125, another principle we observe carefully is that we do not relate intimate experiences of another person unless we are sure he would approve. Now, the word principle there is not referring to the steps. The principle there is referring to sort of a, a rule or a tradition, if you will, even though the traditions had not been thought of or written or passed as of yet. The big book was written in 37 and 38, came out April 10th, 39, and the traditions started appearing in 1946 in a magazine called The Grapevine. And The Grapevine is the monthly magazine of AA. And The Grapevine started publishing these traditions by Bill Wilson, who wrote it, he wrote it from uh, his home in Bedford uh, Hills, New York. And there's a, and I've been there, Nancy's been there, and a bunch of us have been there. Uh, it's uh, up the hill a little bit. It's called Wit's End, and where he did a lot of his writing. And we went up there and saw Wit's End, and we all sat at his desk, and we took each other's pictures sitting at the desk. But that's where, and you could still see the cigarette burns in the desk. He used to put the, cig the lit cigarette on the side of the desk and you could see where it burned into the uh, desk. But that's where he wrote that. And he knew that, he, you know, Bob had been diagnosed with cancer. Bob died in 1950. But he knew that he and Bob would not be around forever and that we needed some guidance here. And a lot of times what happens is people lose this perspective. See, the big book came out in the 30s and most of the AA literature came out in the 60s. But in the 40s, AA was blowing apart. There was controversy and there was, you know, uh, all kinds of things. Maybe one, maybe one of these days I will take a break from the big book and we'll do a session on a Saturday morning of the history behind the traditions, how the traditions actually came into the fellowship. I think that would be a good idea. Maybe we'll schedule it at some point, not today, but just to let you know, he started writing in 1946 in the grapevine. And in 1950, the convention was in Cleveland because he knew that Dr. Bob was dying and Dr. Bob died in November of 50. And he wanted these traditions passed. And then the 12 and 12 came out in 53. But the traditions were ratified by the fellowship, by the alcoholic board, the alcoholic foundation at that time, which consisted of alcoholics and non-alcoholics, that is no longer the case. But they passed the traditions and they became not the law of the land, not the rule of the land, because that wouldn't work too well. Bill wouldn't like that. And alcoholics don't like rules and they don't like, you know, what did Dr. Howard, the psychiatrist, tell Bill? That alcoholics will not respond to the finger in their face. You have to, you have to talk to them differently. And Bill said at the end of his life, we are immature and we are, we are immature, selfish um, uh, egotists, we, immature, selfish babies, I think is what he said, but uh, it'll come to me because I'm getting old. I'm not getting any younger. We're Rebel, immature. Rebels. 
rebels. rebels. Thank you. We are immature, selfish rebels. That's exactly what he said. Thank you. We are immature, selfish rebels, and we don't like to be told what to do. <gasps> put down the alcohol. Put down the food. I'm putting. It's ruining my life. But damn it, I'm going to hang in there. We are rebels, and we don't like being told what to do. Whoever that was, thank you. Uh, let's go back to page 125. We find it better when possible to stick to our own stories. And that's why I don't like to relate a bunch of stories with names attached to them. I like to stick to my own story. A man may criticize or laugh at himself and will, it will affect others favorably, but criticism or ridicule coming from another often produces the contrary effect. I can tell you my story, but don't tell my story, which I actually don't care. But a lot of people would bristle, you know, righteous indignation. You shouldn't be telling my story, you know. Um, members of a family should watch such matters carefully for one careless, inconsiderate remark has been to, known to raise the very devil. We alcoholics are sensitive people. There it is. We are sensitive people. It takes some of us a long time to outgrow that serious handicap. I, I, um, I've listened to many, many fifth steps in my life, which doesn't qualify me as an expert on anything. My sponsor, John, in Los Angeles, California, he says, when you're a star at NOA, there's, first of all, there's no such thing as a star in OA, but when you think you're a star in OA, it's sort of like telling yourself you're the smartest kid in summer school. But I've listened to a lot of fifth steps. And one of the things that comes across in the resentment section, the fear section, and the sex section is many people are highly motivated by what they think others think of them. They're very deathly afraid to be negatively thought of by others. Eleanor Roosevelt said, when considering what others think of us, let's first consider how little they do. So people do not sit around thinking about Harlan. They don't sit around thinking about how many, you know, show of hands, how many people this morning got up thinking about Harlan? I don't think there were any of you. You were thinking about you and I was thinking about me and I was thinking about, I got to get my teeth brushed and I got to take my meds and I got to go to the garbage can and I got to do my whatever I need to do. And the bottom line is Eleanor Roosevelt was right. When considering what others think of us, let's first consider how little they do it. So that's very, very important. She was a very wise woman. Okay, bottom of 125. Oh my God, is it really almost 10 minutes? Oh my God. Many alcoholics and enthusiasts, they run to extremes. At the beginning of recovery, a man will take, as a rule, one of two directions. He may either plunge into a frantic attempt to get on his feet in business, or he may be so enthralled by his new life that he talks or thinks of little else. In either case, certainly certain family problems will arise, no matter what, they will arise. With these, we have had experience galore. And I call it the pendulum syndrome. 
I have a friend of mine and she lives in Northern California in the greater Bay Area, where one of the famous universities is actually that's there in that area. And she, she is like a pendulum. She's either eating everything in sight and gaining weight in leaps and bounds, or she's restricting and she's 90 pounds soaking wet, or she's, you know, she's anorexic, she's bulimic, she's consuming all kinds of artificial sweetener, whatever that may be. And she goes, whoop, zoop, zoop. And I've done that too. I'm either eating everything in sight and I'm making chicken an endangered species and cows an endangered species, or I'm eating very little and I'm stark raving abstinent and I'm recovering. I'm, I'm, I'm recovering, but I'm not living. I'm living to recover. So I'm either living to eat or living to recover. The sweetest color in recovery is gray neither black, some things need to be black and white. You're either abstinent or you're not. You're either doing the steps or you're not. I get that. And I agree with that. It's very black and white. The black and white thinking is step one for sure. And you know, the only step I have to work perfectly is one, but I seek gray in other matters of my life. I don't wanna be black as black. I don't wanna be white as white. I really want to be centered in the middle in most issues, most issues. Okay, let's continue. 126, we think it dangerous if he rushes headlong in his at his economic problem. The family will be affected also. Pleasantly at first, as they feel their money troubles are about to be solved, then not so pleasantly as they find themselves neglected. Dad may be tired at night and preoccupied by day. He may take small interest in the children and may show irritation when reproved for his delinquencies. Reprove just means that he was called to task on them. If not irritable, he may seem dull and boring, not gay and affectionate as the family would like him to be. <clears throat> Mother may complain of inattention. They may all, they are all disappointed and often let him feel it. Beginning with such compl complaints, sorry, a barrier arises. He is straining every nerve to make up for lost time. He is striving to recover fortune and reputation and feels he is doing very well. You know what makes up for lost time? Nothing nothing. We can only do what we can do from where we are. I wish I could go back. I wish I had a time machine. I wish above anything else, I would like to go back to the time I was a child with what I know now. Oh, would I do things differently? Oh, would I do things differently? But we're taught in the big book that we are not to regret the past and I wish to shut the door on it. And I wish that my life was different at you know all junctures of it, but I am where I am. And God has uniquely qualified me to be of maximum service to the people who come across my path who are struggling with their addiction to food. If I didn't have these experiences, I would not be very useful to them. And that would be a crime. That would be a shame. One day I'll pass from the scene because God does like to rotate service. Bill and Bob and Roseanne and Abby and Roland and Dr. Jung and uh, Sam Shoemaker and, 
and, and Archie Throwbridge and, and uh, Fitz Mayo and, and all these various people, they're all gone from the scene. A.G. Ainsworth, all these people are gone from the scene. And so we are the people that are here now. And we must always remember to be the outstretched hand of Overeaters Anonymous to those who suffer for this, I am responsible. And that is the, that is the responsibility pledge that Bill Wilson wrote during his lifetime, to be the outstretched hand of Alcoholics Anonymous to those who are suffering. This is my responsibility. Very important, very important. Sometimes mother and children don't think so. Having been neglected and misused in the past, they think father owes them more than they are getting. They want him to make a fuss over them. They expect him to give them the nice times they used to have before he drank so much and to show his contrition for what they suffered. My, but dad doesn't freely give of himself. Resentment grows. He becomes still less communicative. Sometimes he explodes over a trifle. The family is mystified. They criticize pointing out how he is falling down on his spiritual program. Bill Wilson experienced a lot of this with Lois. Bill really started drinking in 1917 as a soldier in Plattsburgh, New York. Plattsburgh, by the way, when you read that, that's a, a town in upstate New York where he was stationed. And that's where he first started really drinking. And he had had strong warnings and prejudices from his family. Alcohol Alcoholism had broken up his mother and father's marriage. Alcoholism had ransacked Grandpa, Griffin, Grandpa Wilson's marriage to his paternal grandparents. Where his paternal grandfather, whose grave I saw in East Dorset, Vermont, was also an alcoholic. And Bill had been warned. And they served something called a cordial. I'm not, I'm not sure what is cordial is. I'm not a drinker. If it was if it was candy or something, I'd be right on it. I would know exactly what it was. But the bottom line is they serve these cordials. So from 1917 to 1934, Lois Burnham Wilson had her life turned upside down by Bill's drinking. And along comes a guy who she knew to be a drunk who she didn't have much use for. She had known Ebby from the time he was a baby in the buggy. She knew the Thatchers, and how did she know them? She knew them because they all had summer homes in Manchester, Vermont, which is right across from East Dorset, Vermont. And when I went with my sponsor and a couple of other people to East Dorset, Vermont, we went to Manchester, Vermont to see. And the homes are stately and beautiful. Some of them are the same homes. They're old. You could tell that they're turn of the 20th century mansions and they're gorgeous. And she's, she can't understand, she can't wrap her brain around this drunken bum comes into my home. This piece of, you know what, comes into my home. And now you're sober? 
And now you're not drinking? And who the hell is this doctor in Akron? Bill left New York City in April of 35. He didn't come home until September of 35. She's home. She's got to handle everything that's coming. There's not a dime coming in the house. There's not a penny coming in. He's not working. She's, wor- oh, there. that's not true that there's not a penny. She's working in the department store. Okay, so she's making, an, on average, between $19 salary plus commission, she's making, on average, $25 to $26 a week. It's the height of the depression. She is expected by herself to keep everything afloat, but he's sober who the hell is the doctor? Where the hell is Ebby? And what the hell happened to all the work I put in? I was the one, Lois. Lois was the one that sat there with Dr. Silkworth when Silkworth was telling her, you're either going to have to lock him up or he's going to die or he's going to go in the insane asylum. You're going to have to lock him up. And she had literature from asylums where she was going to lock him up because she didn't know what else to do. And he found them and he threw them at her and said, you're not locking me up. So with everything that she had been through with him in 17 years of drunken behavior, the money that he pissed away, the opportunities that he that he squandered, the, the, the behaviors, the picking him up from God knows what lockup, the, 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 the ectopic pregnancy that she suffered, and he comes in the next day. And it was obvious that he was wearing the same clothes. It was obvious he had been drunk all night. Ebby Thatcher and this doctor get him sober. And so in, in August of 1935, Lois goes out on a couple, she takes a couple of days off from her job. She goes out to Akron, Ohio to meet these people. And they were pleasant enough people. They were fine. There was pretty much an instant chemistry. They were very nice to Lois. They were glad to see her. She was glad to see that he was sober, but he didn't come home for another month. And she cannot figure out what the hell is going on here. How come I couldn't get you sober? Stand that in order for the message to be carried, it must have depth and weight. And the reason that I'm relating that to you is because your message has depth and weight. You've walked through the pain of your life, and now you can use that to save countless others. Countless others. Lois had no denominator with the alcoholic. She did not understand what it was like to want liquor more than you want to live. She didn't smell the things that drunks smell. She didn't see the things that drunks see. And she didn't feel the things that drunks feel. You have felt what it's like to be a compulsive overeater, to be in the bathroom with diarrhea shooting out of you and vomiting. And in a series of split second decisions, everyone must be right. Or you've got a nasty cleanup job in your bathroom. 
you swear to God in the mirror with tears running down your face as you take your kaopectate, as you take your Pepto, as you swear to God in the bathroom, as you wash your face that you will never eat like this again, you will look for solace in the refrigerator, looking for something in the refrigerator to make you feel better. Normal people do not do that. Normal people do not look for comfort in a refrigerator when they have just vomited and had diarrhea in the bathroom. Okay, now before I turn this over, I'm going to make a couple of things known again. Next week, we are not going to be here. You are all invited to join us uh, in this retreat and the Zoom information. I think Maria or Karen or somebody, Sue, I'm not sure. Somebody has put that in the chat, I would assume. We will reconvene on the 31st of July. The 31st is that Saturday after next. So we will do that. And we're going to be at the at the bottom of 126, starting with this sort of thing. Now, no questions about math, no questions about food, very important. And I'm gonna ask that if you are not a Dallas Cow, if you are a Dallas Cowboy fan, we think you suck. But <laughs> bottom line is, is that I'm a Bears fan, sorry. But the bottom line is, is that it is very, very important if you were, if you asked a question last week, please step back and let people who have not answered a question come forward at the end. And I know I've cut into the time here because I was talking and I didn't notice the time, but at the end, if you do have a question and you asked one last week, we'll try to get you in there. But let the people that have not asked a question, let them come through first. I'm going to turn it back over to Karen for lack of knowing who else to turn it over to because I don't remember. I think it was Karen that is in charge now. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a Dallas Cowboy fan. Be you. Okay. Thank you for another stuff. I was a girl that lives in Syracuse, New York. I don't get it. Yeah. I'm, I'm marrying a man who's a Dallas Cowboy fan. So I I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. I'd like to thank Maria uh, from Dublin, Ireland, for being our co-host. Sue Al for being our co-host. And Nancy J is going to um, do the Q&A. And with that, I'm going to stop the recording and thank everybody for their service. And we did top out at 125 today. Okay, thank you, Karen. And we're now gonna go into the Q&A and I ask for everybody to not be shy